Last week, if you remember, I asked uh, some of you to, if you've shared your faith, and, and maybe some of you that raised your hand uh, earlier tried to email me at Tom at Prescott Cornerstone, and perhaps that email didn't get through. And uh, if you would put down TomGarrishay at gmail.com, it'll make sure to get through. But I did get one interesting email from somebody, from a mom, and I want to read this to you this morning before I do my message. It says, two months ago, my daughter, who we have nicknamed Happiness, joined a weekly soccer club. During her sessions, she met a girl three years older than her, happy who needed uh, each week a sweet new friend, or she was looking for a sweet new friend that might be a Christian. Well, one week she came home from soccer and announced to the family that she had asked her friend a weird question. While waiting to start a new drill, she told her friend, I'm about to ask you a very weird question, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. So if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? She said that the girl giggled, Happy laughed too, and then responded, I told you it was a weird question. And after a long pause, the question remained unanswered. The next week, Happy brought a magic trick to show her friend. After showing her the trick, she said, this trick is a present for you. And I wanted to tell you about my best friend because I thought you might like to know him. He's so awesome, and we will always be friends. Sometimes I get scared at night, and my friend is right next to me, and he comforts me. And then I go to sleep not scared. Sometimes I feel embarrassed when I'm with my friends and I can't read as well as them or spell as well as them and they are younger than me. Then that friend that's always with me helps me to know that I'm okay and that someday I'll read as well as my friends. A lot of people think that this friend of mine is fake because you can't see him or feel him, but he is true. You can't know uh, he is true unless you ask him to become your friend. Do you want to know who my friend is? It's Jesus. He died on the cross for you and took all of your sins and placed them on himself so that you could become his friend. The magic trick explains how you can know Jesus. Just look on the back. If you have any questions, I will be happy to answer them. The friend sat and read and read and reread those two cards. Needless to say, Happy came home overjoyed. The following week, Happy decided to let it sit. She didn't want to nag her new friend. Instead, she just prayed. While she was praying, she suddenly thought of a blind man in the Bible. This man was born blind and wanted to see Jesus, but couldn't. Jesus placed mud in his eyes, and when the man washed his eyes, he could see. Like that man, Happy prayed that God would put mud on her new sins, or on her, I'm sorry, God would put mud on her new friend's eyes and her heart, and then wash away the blindness so that she could see and understand her sin. She said to me later that day, Mom, I don't know how I thought of that story of the blind man, but it was like I was praying, and suddenly I realized that this girl was blind and couldn't understand anything. She wouldn't understand her sin or that Jesus loved her, so I just prayed that God would wash away the mud. I said through tears of my own, happy you have heard the voice of God and avoid his face. The last week of soccer was a tough decision for happy. The date happened to overlap with her basketball game, and after much thought, she came down the stairs with her shin guards and announced to the family, I'm ready to go to soccer. You know, people are more important than sports. Happy's new friend did come to soccer, and to Happy's surprise, she announced that she was a Christian. I told my daughter something my wise aunt shared with me. Sharing the love of Jesus is like building a car. Sometimes your job is to put the bolts on the tires. Sometimes you are asked to install the steering wheel or apply the paint. But at the end of the day, God only gives one person the job of turning the key and starting the car. That day is amazing for the person chosen to turn the key, but his or her job would be impossible without all others faithfully doing their own God-designed jobs. 
As I retell this story, it almost seems fabricated or at least embellished. How could an eight-year-old display such love and wisdom? How did these ideas come into her heart? From what well did she muster her courage and boldness? The only explanation I have is that she has a loving friend who always walks beside her. He doesn't care how old she is or how well-educated or experienced she is. To her, Jesus is the perfect person. After all, he will guide her every step and direct her every word. Amen, huh? (laughs) Friends, if an eight-year-old can do that, amen, so can you. Well, we're going to get into a passage today that's rather interesting. It's in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to be in your Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at a further message that Jesus gave, I think, all in one day, the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground today in just a few minutes. So bear with me. But basically what we want to talk about today is the law. And I I thought, as I was thinking about this message, I, I thought, are there any still interesting laws on the books? And I found these very interesting. There is actually a law in the books in Ohio that policemen are allowed to bite a dog if they think it will calm the dog down. (laughs) These are actual laws that are still in the books. In Arizona, if you cut down a cactus, you can be sentenced to 25 years in prison. Do you realize that? You don't mess with swarrows, okay? In Georgia, chickens are not allowed to cross the road. So you can't tell that joke, you know. Um, In Wyoming, you can take a picture of a rabbit from January to April without an official permit. I mean, this is crazy. Nevada, it is illegal for those with a mustache to kiss a woman. Some of you women would probably amen that, okay? Well, in this particular passage, we're going to see that Jesus came to fulfill the law. How many laws did Jesus fulfill? I looked it up. There were 613 laws that were given in Scripture. We started with the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but there were many Levitical laws that were tacked onto it. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill that law. What does that look like? Well, let's take a look. We're going to go in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. So let's read verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus was being challenged here, and what he was trying to do is address the challenge because he came with a revolutionary message called grace. And that grace seemed to supersede the law, and so consequently the Pharisees were attacking him saying, what are you doing, Jesus? Are you messing with the Old Testament? Are you saying the Old Testament isn't relevant anymore? What are you talking about that you came here to fulfill the law? Well, in that day, there were basically three kinds of individuals who were relating to the law. The first one were people who were trying so hard to keep the law that it was just a performance-based kind of a religion. And there are people today who are trying to somehow think that if they perform in a certain way, that somehow God's going to approve them if they just sort of keep the law. 
They just kind of basically mildly obeyed the Ten Commandments. And then there were these people that, that would say, you know what, I could never keep all those 613 laws. And so why even mess with it? Why bother? And so many of the people gave up. And then the third party of people that were there were mostly the Pharisees. And those guys were, were the kind of guys that thought, you know what, we're keeping the law. We got it together. And they had this arrogance about the way they were keeping the law. And so, in essence, what was going on here is that Jesus was addressing this issue of the law because there was a revolutionary message that he brought to the table. And that table was the message of grace, that he would evidently fulfill all of those laws, all 613 Jesus kept. But was more than that, because what the law did was essentially convict. I mean, all the law does, right, is basically tell us how we've messed up. The law can't save us. And so no matter how hard people try to keep the law, it just wasn't enough. So Jesus addresses the accusation by number one saying, Jesus came to earth to fulfill the law. That's principle number one. Why? Because the law didn't save anybody. All it did was convict. Jesus came to solve the problem. See, the law, all it did was reveal our sinfulness. And that what, what needed to happen was there needed to be somebody to somehow be that ultimate sacrifice to fulfill all of the demands of the law because we couldn't do it. And so Jesus comes along and decides that there's this, this in some way we've got to figure out how to keep people from being condemned by the law. And so he gave his life as a perfect sacrifice, an act of grace that you and I enjoy so that we're no longer being under the law in the sense that it no longer is, is holding us hostage. In Romans 8, chapter 1, it says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We're no longer condemned under the law because of Jesus Christ who came and became that substitute to fulfill all of the law. Frank so eloquently described that whole process to you a little bit earlier during communion. But I want you to see number, principle number two. If we think we can get to heaven by keeping the law, we are sadly mistaken. There's a lot of people that you meet on the street from day to day who think that if they're good enough, if somehow they've somehow, quote, abided by pretty much the Ten Commandments. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I really haven't lied to anybody. I've never committed adultery. And they feel pretty good about themselves because they feel like, you know what? I've sort of really kept the law. And maybe by, by the end of my life, that my life will be weighed in this balance and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. Well, they're sadly mistaken because in verse 19 it says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So even one law that's broken condemns us to hell. That's a death penalty because for all of sin, right, and falls short of the glory of God. So the wages of sin is death. Now what's fascinating here, Jesus makes a statement, and this is really powerful, especially with the Pharisees standing there. He says this in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Boy, you talk about a dagger. And sometimes what happens is I think that, that, that people, I don't know, maybe they put pastors or spiritual leaders on a pedestal. 
But if you really want to take this to the next level in terms of what Jesus is really saying, every one of you sitting here, your righteousness has surpassed mine. Your righteousness should surpass the elders of this church. Your righteousness should surpass all of, quote, the spiritual leaders because it's not about us. It's about Jesus, right? And so Jesus is making a huge statement here because everybody had this great admiration for, quote, the Pharisees, man, these guys got it wired. They got it all together, man. They know all the laws and they are so good at keeping the laws. I could never be a Pharisee. And then Jesus kind of lays them flat and says, look, your righteousness better supersede these guys. Because these religious leaders haven't got it together at all. Essentially, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. So Jesus addresses this issue. Now, what he's really wanting to get to now in his sermon is he's saying, look, the law is a law. That's okay. It is what it is. But you need to realize that when we talk about the law, he says we've got to go deeper than the actual uh, basic of the law. Let me try to explain this. And so he starts by using the model or the example of murder, okay? So he, look at verses 21 through 26. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. One of the Ten Commandments, right? It was the Sixth Commandment. And so he says, now look, do not murder anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22. But, he says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment again. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, yeah, there's the letter of the law, but it goes deeper than that. It goes to the heart. And so Jesus is trying to point people to their heart, not to the law itself. Because if we want to just take the law at face value, we can say, oh, no, I've never murdered anybody. Well, wait a minute. What is the root of murder? And what he says here, it's anger. And so he talks about it here. He says, look, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which means fool or idiot, is an answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire from a hell. So he's saying, look, it's anger. That's the issue. Here's what he says in verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge and be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. He says, look, you think that you're escaping this particular law and saying, I'm good. I've never killed anybody. I've never murdered anybody. But friend, you've been angry. You've been angry at people. You've called people idiots or stupid. You've taken people to court. You, you've had, you know that people have stuff against you. And what he's saying here is, look, we should settle our anger issues as quickly as possible. That's principle number three. What he's saying here, he said, listen, anger is the root of murder. Anger that's un checked will go into bitterness, a root of bitterness, and it'll get deeper and deeper, and perhaps anger is the very root of what murder really is the end result. So he said, get to the core, get the inside deal, go to the heart. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Look, you can take all these laws and you can maybe abide by them, but if the motive of your heart is wrong, you're still in, in trouble. And so he says, get these anger's issues be reconciled to your brother. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Deal with your anger. Anger unchecked will be a very destructive force in the lives of other people. So how is your anger this morning? 
You see, that's what Jesus is trying to say in his sermon. He's saying, listen, it's not an, I, there's no murderers in this room, hopefully. But there's been a lot of people in this room that have been pretty angry at times. Are you reconciled to your brother? Are you dealing with it? Are you taking care of it? Are you, are, are you, do you understand how important it is to be reconciled to people in your life? So get with it. Understand that you need to forgive, that you need to move, you need to reconcile, you need to take some initiative to resolve your anger. Because that's the law of your heart, you see. That's different from murder. It's the law in your heart. Well, Jesus goes on to a second illustration of where the law has been misinterpreted, okay? He talks about adultery. Let's read verses 27 to 30. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within his heart. See, Jesus is always getting to the heart, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying... No, you've not committed adultery. You've not been intimate with another man or another woman. But if you've lusted, you've already committed adultery in your heart. This is a tough one. See, lust has been taken to a whole new level in our culture today, right? With the advent of free pornography on the internet, it's just rampant. It's an absolute disease that's going on in our culture today. In fact, some statistics about lust today is just unbelievable when it comes to internet pornography. 68% of men and 14% of women access pornography every week on the internet. Do you know what that means, friends? That it's possible that two-thirds of the men in this audience today are struggling perhaps maybe with pornography. That's a sobering issue. In fact, I've read statistics of, uh, of upward of 40% and 50% of pastors are struggling with pornography. And I used to say, no, that can't be. But when I was dealing with pastors, I couldn't believe what an epidemic it is amongst pastors. And now look what he says. Now, this is interesting because he doesn't use this kind of a dramatic way of dealing with this particular issue except in the context of sexual sin. And this principle is number four. When it comes to sexual sin, it is imperative to attack it with great vigilance. Why? Because look at what he says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, you cannot mess with this sin. This is something you've got to really be vigilant about. You've got to be intentional about. You've got to go after it as hard as you can go after it. And if something is offending you, you've got to figure out a way to block it. You've got to figure a way to deal with it. Hold yourself accountable because sexual sin is one of those things that if you don't get on it, it's going to take over your life. Do you realize it's becoming the major cause of divorce in society today is pornography? And that there's actually 70% of women who have had husbands hooked on a pornography are dealing with their own PTSD as a result of it. Sexual sin has got to be dealt with with great vigilance. We cannot allow it to just simmer and soak. We've got to deal with it directly and confront it. We need to cut it off. Okay. 
I spoke my piece on that one, right? Are, we with, are you with me? Amen. So Jesus says, look, no, you haven't committed adultery. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. Your heart, have you lost it? Have you lost it? That's where, that's the root. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. If you don't deal with the root, you don't deal with your heart, you're not going to deal with the end result. It's going to get you. So you better be extremely vigilant about dealing with that issue if it's a problem in your life. Now Jesus deals with a third illustration. This is another tough one. There was a law on the books about divorce. And that law essentially was found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. And here's what it, basically Deuteronomy 20, uh, 24, verses 1 through 3 said. It said, if a husband is displeased with his wife, he can write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. So if a husband's unhappy with his wife, he just says, here, honey, you're divorced, you're gone, you're done. And, and it was a result of a hardness of heart. And, and that was essentially the law at that point. But that is not, uh, that was the, uh, the overall arching issue of the hardness of heart. And so Jesus wanted to approach the hardness of heart piece. Okay, so he writes, verse 31. It has been said, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's what it says in Deuteronomy, okay? But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus comes after this issue of divorce. And I think principle number five, what Jesus is trying to say, is that marriage vows are never to be taken lightly. That's principle number five. We're going to talk about vows next week when he gets into another illustration of taking oaths. It'll be very appropriate, perhaps, on Valentine's Day, we hope. See, in Mark chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus speaks about this again. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote the law. He said, it's not about just when you're displeased, you can just write this certificate of divorce. You got a problem with a hard heart. And you know as well as I do that the cause of every divorce in America today and in the church is a result of somebody's heart that's hard. And until our heart softens, divorce will continually be a problem. In fact, I heard the other day that what divorce rate is increasing rapidly in empty nesters. Because there's been a lack of intimacy in a marriage for many, many years. And guys are getting divorced now in 40 years of marriage. In fact, I just talked to somebody yesterday who said, Oh, my brother's getting a divorce after 47 years of marriage. Well, something has been a lacking in intimacy. You know, over those many years, they had kids and grandkids, and now that everybody's out of the house, and now that I have, I'm living longer, man, man, 65, man, I got another 20 years. I could really have a fling if I could, you know? And so consequently, divorce has become taken too lightly. Now, Paul gave another instance of permissible divorce when he said, when there's been an unbelieving spouse who deserts their wife or their husband. A question here in terms of divorce and what adultery means. What, what, or let, me, let me just finish that particular part first. Let me just finish this because I think, let me give you some, some, some things that I feel like about divorce. I think that the Bible is not complete in terms of addressing all of the issues that may make divorce permissible. 
But I don't think the reason why it's complete is, is because the Lord wants to say, I hate divorce. Let's see. Let's talk about the positive side. Let's do the preventive maintenance. Let's talk about what marriage should be rather than look for all of the reasons why you can pull it off and get rid of a husband or a wife. Now, here's the second thought that I've also had about divorce because a lot of people have asked me, would you remarry somebody who's been divorced and all that kind of stuff? And what I want to say to you today is this. Divorce, I know, is not the unpardonable sin. Right? The unpardonable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if there's true repentance and God has really changed a person's heart, then do I think that they could perhaps get remarried? I do. But that's a personal opinion that I feel like God has spoken to me about. And so what I want to say here, a lot of times in the Christian community, we've said divorce is sort of the unpardonable sin. And once you've been divorced, you're, you're no good. You've lost your marriage card. You can't ever get it back. The problem is, you know, is it an unpardonable sin? No. And once a sin is taken care of, Scripture says that he does not hold it yet to your account. So I want to be careful here because I don't want to sound liberal in this matter, but I, what I really want to emphasize is the fact that when we take our vows, when we say to death do us part, by golly, we better mean it. We better understand that when we come together with a husband and a wife, that this is a covenant, a holy covenant between two people, that holy covenants according to biblical history is the fact that those cannot be ever broken. And so I'm a, a strong believer in staying married and staying together and working things out. So don't get me wrong here. But Jesus approaches this. And, and you, can, you can talk about, you know, what uh, this, this uh, um, adultery might look like. I mean, uh, can we say then is pornography adultery? Well, some people believe that pornography could be adultery. And so that's grounds for divorce. Some people uh, say, what constitutes desertion then by an unbelieving partner? Well, can they be deserted emotionally? Can you be deserted physically? Can you be deserted spiritually? What, what does that look like? And so consequently, there's a lot of debate out there and there's a lot of hardliners and there's probably people on the other side of this issue. But what Jesus is really trying to say, look, what God has joined together, if God's put it together, let no man separate. Bottom line. And I know one of the things that I deal with with premarital counseling, the first thing I'll ask, how did you get together? Was it a God thing or was it an emotional thing? And if it was a God thing, then by golly, when you take those vows, God puts you together. You don't have any right to separate it if God's done the work. Now, we know that God hates divorce, but he certainly doesn't hate the people, okay? And sometimes we've alienated folks and they felt very second class because they're divorced and we know that a lot of uh, what statistics are telling us today that perhaps 50% of the people today have been divorced at one time or the other. So bottom line is this. It breaks God's heart when we mess up something he has so ordained called marriage. God obviously designed marriage to be a lasting covenant between two people that should never be broken. That's the bottom line. And what Jesus was addressing again to these folks, he's saying, listen, you have taken divorce way too lightly. And it's high time that you realize that divorce is not necessarily the best option here. And you, he's speaking probably directly to men who just said, well, if I don't like my wife, I want to get rid of her. I'll just trade her in for a new one. It's ridiculous. And what Jesus was saying, you know, yeah, you can keep the law. Oh, yeah, you've, you've been divorced. You just kind of decided you didn't like your wife, so you wrote it. No, wait a minute, time out. That's not what it's about here, friend. 
So that's what Jesus is doing. Next week, we're going to look as we go down further as Jesus continues to illustrate how laws are laws, but until you get to the heart of the matter, you will never understand the real intent of the law and how much it does really convict. And so maybe perhaps some of you today have been sort of convicted because it's gotten beyond the law itself into your heart. So let me conclude here with some questions. You know I always pull this off, I always do this, so, you know, why, why change the uh, MO, okay? When I started this message, there were three kinds of people, right? There were the kind of people that got into performance-based Christianity. These are people that said, oh, all these laws, you know, and, and, and some of you here today are perhaps this perfectionistic kind of personality, and you're a doer, and you want to do things right, and that's just kind of in your nature, and you've kind of gotten into this performance-based kind of Christianity where it's been all about your behavior, not about your heart. I want to encourage you to get down to the heart of the matter. Why are you performing? What's this all about? Are you still trying to earn God's love when it's already been available to you by His grace? You know, maybe you're that person that has been a Christian for a while and you just feel like, you know what? I keep messing up. I want to be all that God wants me to be, but I just, it's just never works for me. And so I, you're about ready to quit. You're probably ready to check out. Are you there? Is that maybe where you are this morning? You're just saying, you know what? I give up. I'll never be like so-and-so. I, I can't be that spiritual. I, there's just no way. You know what's going on in your life? You're not walking by grace. You're walking by the law, right? You're letting the law still condemn you when it's by grace that you've been saved. God still loves you unconditionally. So don't give up. Don't give up. Third, what are those unresolved anger issues in your life that are still lurking? Where Jesus specifically says, listen, you need to deal with this as quickly as you can. Don't let this stuff fester. Stop. Just stop hanging on to these issues. Let them go. Reconcile. Do whatever it takes. Get it figured out. Maybe you're struggling with some form of lust. Maybe it's pornography. We don't, I don't know what it is. But friend, you've got to be more aggressive if you're going to whip that. I've dealt with so many men over the years of my ministry who are hooked into pornography and it takes an aggressive, accountable person to really whip that, to get it under control. Take some steps, whatever that is. Be vigilant about it. Here's the last question. How strong is your marriage? Has your heart been hardened lately? As a husband or as a wife, you're frustrated, angry, getting harder and harder to stay in the relationship. And you kind of feel that, and God is saying, wait a minute, time out, time out. Did you say one day when you were at the altar that you would love and cherish until death do you part? Did you say that in front of God and witnesses? That was a covenant. Get your hearts off it. Let's pray. Father, I see this message today and I see how Jesus preached and he didn't pull any punches. 
Lord, I pray that I've conveyed what you convey when you stood there by the Sea of Galilee amongst all those people, those Pharisees, those disciples. And you gave this message. It was all about the heart, not about the law. It was about your grace. And God, I pray for that person this morning that may be struggling in one of these areas, whether it's their marriage, whether it's lust or with anger, that they would really face it and really allow you to work in their life because it's all about their heart. So Lord, forgive us for those moments when we feel pretty good about ourselves. I just pray that we really remember this message. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.